One of the most remarkable stories of grace in the history of the church is the testimony of John Newton. Uh, Newton's godly mother taught him the scriptures until she died when, when Newton was seven years old. And when John was just 11, as a boy grown up in 18th century England, his father, a, a sea captain, took Newton to sea for the first time when he was just 11 years old. Newton remained a sailor for many years. He eventually uh, became a, a captain of his own ship, but it was a slave ship, actually, a ship involved in the slave trade. And he himself, even for a time, was a servant to slaves as he was taken into captivity on the West African coast. By all accounts, and including his own, Newton had a reputation for profanity and for debauchery, even among sailors, and that's saying something. After Newton, in God's providence, was rescued from his enslavement in Africa, on the trip back across the Atlantic, uh, the ship, the Greyhound, not the one captained by Tom Hanks, this one that, that Newton was on, if you didn't get that joke, I apologize, he encountered a fierce storm. This took place on March the 10th, actually, anniversary coming up, March the 10th, 1748. Newton wrote of that day, that 10th of March is a day much to be remembered by me, and I have never allowed it to pass unnoticed since the year 1748. For on that day, the Lord came from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. The storm took the greyhound and her crew to death's door. Newton wrote that he didn't expect to survive the, the night. As Newton hurried to the pumps that were used to extricate the water from the hold of the ship, he said to the captain, he said, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. And according to Newton, the words that came out of his mouth startled him. Mercy? He said to himself in astonishment, mercy? Mercy? What mercy can there be for me? This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy for many years. Needless to say, that day, the Lord rescued Newton from both physical and spiritual death. Over the next several years, God began to transform this man's life. Newton eventually joined Will William Wilberforce in his efforts to abolish the slave trade in England, the very slave trade that, that Newton had once supported. Eventually, God called him to pastoral ministry. He pastored in Olney, England for 16 years and then for 26 years in the city of Woolworth. While in Olney, Newton cared for a mentally ill yet brilliant man named William Cooper. And together with Cooper, John Newton produced the Olney Hymns in 1779, one of the most significant uh, compilations of hymns in church history. Hymn 41 of Olney Hymns was originally titled Faith's Review and Expectation. We probably don't know that title, but we do know the hymn. Newton wrote it as his personal testimony. It goes like this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Even all those years later, Newton had not gotten over the mercy of Christ to him. Friends, in our passage today in 1 Timothy, we'll see that neither did the Apostle Paul. He recognized that both his salvation and his ministry were entirely due to the grace of God. And by reflecting on his testimony as a way of instructing Timothy, Paul is going to help us today understand how grace, God's unmerited favor in Christ, undergirds our faithfulness to Christ as well. So please turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1, it's on page 991 of the Bible underneath your seats. Please avail yourself to that Bible if you need one this morning. Friends, as we learned last week, 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his protege in ministry. In the mid-60s AD, Paul assigned Timothy the responsibility of, of setting a struggling church in order, the church at Ephesus. It seems like Timothy's greatest pastoral challenge was he had to correct the teaching, uh, the false teaching of, of brothers who had arisen in the church, presumably in its leadership. These men were teaching what Paul called a different doctrine, a sub-biblical gospel. 
They were using the Old Testament law to promote speculation, speculative myths and fables, rather than promoting faith in God's revealed word. So what was the result? Instead of the church being built up in love and unity through the true gospel, it was disintegrated into factions and disunity. It was Timothy's job to put an end to the false teaching and to help the church at Ephesus know how to live together as the body of Christ. That's what we learned last week in verses 1 to 11. Paul exhorted Timothy to confront these false teachers and to restore sound doctrine, which in verse 11, remember, Paul says this sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been trusted. Now, now just following the flow of the passage, it's almost like at the very mention of his own gospel ministry, Paul is catapulted into thanksgiving to God for the privilege of such a high calling and thanksgiving for the death of grace that rescued him from his former life. That's what we're going to read together in the passage today, starting in verse 12. Paul writes to Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, friends, before I give you the main idea and the outline of our sermon, which I, which I often do, I hope every week do, let me first help you see the flow of this passage. Verses 18 to 20 form a bookend with the opening of Paul's letter to Timothy in verses 3 to 7. Paul swings back, doesn't he? And he reiterates the same exhortation that he began with. In fact, he uses the same word that he began with. In verse 18, he writes, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. We've already seen that word charge or command in verse 3 and in verse 5. Paul doesn't want Timothy to miss the urgency of his pastoral responsibility. So what then is the purpose of Paul's testimony that we read in verses 12 to 17? Is it just filler? Is it just kind of an apostolic rabbit trail? Well, no, not at all. I think what Paul is doing, friends, is he's encouraging Timothy. As Timothy read, read once again of Paul's stunning conversion and his subsequent appointment to ministry, Paul aims to remind Timothy that his own salvation, that his own calling to ministry is equally by God's grace. Timothy hasn't qualified himself for ministry, has he? No, God has. God is the one who saved him by mercy and appointed him to the task there in Ephesus. And then as as Timothy's heart is renewed in the confidence in God's power to rescue sinners and even to appoint sinners to his service, surely Timothy will have a rejuvenated confidence that God can and will work powerfully through the gospel even in that church, even in that struggling, disunified, even heresy-fraught church. Here's the main idea. Here's the main idea. I hope it'll be the main idea of the sermon. I think it's the main idea of the text. God's grace is more than sufficient to save us from sin and strengthen us for ministry. God's grace is more than sufficient. I get that language from verse uh, verse Uh, 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed. It's overflowing grace. It's more than sufficient to save us from sin and to strengthen us for ministry. 
Two points this morning, mirroring the two sections of the text. Number one, in verses 12 to 17, we see a grace-filled blueprint for ministry. A grace-filled blueprint. And then, secondly, in verses 18 to 20, we're going to see a grace-fueled responsibility in ministry. A grace-filled blueprint and a grace-fueled responsibility. Friends, I pray that the Lord might strengthen us, encourage us, and even rebuke us if necessary by his word this morning through the gospel. Let's look at this first point, a grace-filled blueprint for ministry. So Paul springboards, doesn't he, about writing, uh, writing about the gospel with which he's been entrusted to thanking the one who strengthened him for the task. Paul acknowledges, hey, I do not have the resources necessary for my ministry. I don't have the requisite tank of ministry fuel in me. I owe it all to Christ Jesus. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Clearly, friends, Paul is reflecting back on his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and his ensuing meeting with, with Ananias that, uh, that, that was read this morning. We read about it in Acts 9. Paul isn't saying that, that Christ trusted him because Paul was inherently trustworthy. That wouldn't make sense at all with what we know of the story. Paul had done nothing to prove himself faithful. Rather, the reason that Christ judged Paul faithful was due to the very strength that Christ promised him for the task. It was all a gift of grace. Friends, Paul's ministry blueprint, the architectural design of his entire life in ministry is by grace alone. It started by saving grace and it continues by strengthening grace. I love what the the church father, Augustine, wrote on this theme. He said, God calls what he wills and he gives what he calls. God calls what he wills and he gives what he calls. In other words, friends, God will always back by grace what he calls by sovereignty. It's often tempting, isn't it, to look at other believers in various difficult circumstances and think, how in the world are they getting through that with such godliness? I could just, I could never do that. I could never do that. How in the world, perhaps like me, you saw that video circulating of the Ukrainian believers who around the, the dinner table were singing joyfully, he will hold me fast, even as Russia waited on the borders to invade. How could they respond with such faith? If you think, oh, there's no way I could do that. If you look at other brothers and sisters in this church who have been faithful over, over a lifetime that's been filled with, with various challenges and obstacles and suffering, and you think, I, I would have thrown in the towel a long time ago. Well, friend, left to our own resources, we all would. But thankfully, God not only calls what he wills, he gives what he calls. He strengthens us to live faithfully in the circumstances to which he's called us. Friends, you may not have the grace of that Ukrainian family right now, but that's, what, that's not what God has called you to right now. That's what he's called them to endure by grace. Friends, what we can be sure of beyond of a shadow of a doubt is that there is a full and ready reservoir of God's strengthening grace available to you today for what God has called you to today. And that same strengthening grace will be available tomorrow for what God has called you to tomorrow. That Jesus strengthened Paul and qualified him for ministry was all the more remarkable when you consider who Paul was when Jesus met him. Paul, friends, thinks accurately about himself in the present because he remembers who he was in the past. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, he writes. It's easy, isn't it, to forget that the man who wrote half the New Testament was the equivalent of a religious terrorist before he met Christ. Paul was an especially zealous Pharisee, a Jewish religious leader who taught and sought to protect God's Old Testament law. Paul's zeal was next level, wasn't it? It produced in him a religious activism against the new sect that had risen within Judaism that taught that the promised Messiah was actually a man who died shamefully upon a Roman cross. No doubt to Paul, it was the height of blasphemy 
to worship this man as God under the delusion that he had risen from the dead. How ironic, isn't it, that in his effort to stamp out these blasphemers, Paul himself became one. He spoke evil against Jesus Christ and therefore blasphemed the purposes of God to bring salvation through him. But friends, not only did Paul blaspheme Christ by his word, he persecuted him by his actions. We read from Acts 9 this morning in Acts 8.1, a chapter before. Acts 8.1 says that when Stephen was stoned to death for preaching Christ, guess who approved the execution? It was Saul of Tarsus, Saul being another name for Paul. Acts 8.2 continues, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Friends, Saul, Paul, in his pre-converted life was ruthless, was cunning and brutal in his treatment of Christians. He was willing to destroy entire families in the name of God. Paul blasphemed by his words. He persecuted by his actions. And Paul adds in verse 13 that he was an insolent opponent. His heart was arrogant and violent. He found satisfaction in insulting and humiliating others. His words, deeds, and thoughts were deeply wicked. Friends, if there was ever a man who deserved to be immediately struck down in judgment by God, it was Saul of Tarsus. But instead the risen Christ struck him down in mercy. If ever there were someone that seemed beyond the possibility of grace, surely it was this guy. Paul was intent on persecuting Christ, but Christ was intent on rescuing Paul from his life of sin. Paul continues his testimony in verse 13. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Our oh, friends, what Paul received from the hand of Jesus Christ was the opposite of what he deserved. His sin deserved wrath. Paul received mercy. God extended to Paul his saving pity and compassion. It's not that Paul's ignorance deserved God's mercy, somehow warranted God's mercy, but rather, friends, praise God, he is predisposed in mercy toward those whose sin, no matter how heinous, stems from ignorance about the purposes of God. We saw that in Jonah, didn't we? Remember how Jonah closes at the end of chapter 4? In the very last verse, the Lord asked Jonah that penetrating rhetorical question, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know what? Their right hand from their left. Not knowing the right hand from the left indicates moral confusion. It indicates spiritual ignorance. It's not that the Ninevites and Paul and, and all of lost humanity aren't culpable for our actions. We are all responsible and all accountable, no matter how ignorant we may be. But praise God, God's heart bends toward the spiritually ignorant in mercy. Verse 14, Paul writes that not only did he not get what he did deserve, he's received so much that he doesn't deserve. He says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, this verse, friends, is the, is the verse that inspired John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. It inspired Bunyan's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And Paul pictures God's grace like an overflowing fountain, like a, like a river that floods its banks. Friends, it wasn't just barely enough grace for Paul. It was more than enough. It wasn't limited grace. It was lavish grace. Grace for Paul is always, always connected to the work of Christ on the cross. And so it is here. He is the recipient of God's grace won by Christ on the cross and received by faith in him. I love the image here. Previously, Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But now in Christ, he's received also three things, grace, faith, and love. 
What's replaced his religious idolatry is genuine faith in the risen Christ. And what's replaced his hate-filled heart for Christians is a brotherly affection for them. Friends, what, what separated Paul and Timothy from the false teachers? What, what separates us from unbelievers? Only God's grace. It's the transforming work of God in Christ through the Spirit. Friends, what Paul is describing here are the marks of genuine conversion. When God does a work in someone's life by grace, things change. When the Spirit of God moves in, He renovates the place entirely. Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about it in terms of a new creation, doesn't he? It's a life remade in Christ's image. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friend, if you're a professing Christian, uh, you claim to be a Christian, but your life looks no different than before you started professing Christ, well then, chances are, friends, chances are you've not experienced the new creation work of the Spirit. For authentic Christians, our confession of Christ will be matched by a life that's been transformed by the Spirit as in the process of being shaped into Christ's image. We'll not only confess and trust in the true gospel, but the pattern of our lives will give credibility to our profession of faith. Friends, conversion doesn't mean that we're, we're sin-free. Oh, not at all. We will wrestle with sin until the day we die or the time Jesus returns. But for true believers, for those remade by the Spirit, holiness will be our increasing aim and love will be our increasing pattern. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to hear the testimonies of membership candidates as we do our, our membership conversations before uh, welcoming people into our church family. Uh, it's, it's just remarkable. No testimony is alike. And that's one thing that makes it so awesome. Like they're all different, but they're all equally amazing. God's mercy reaches down and saves in a variety of ways. You know, but what's clear in all the testimonies, no matter if it's dramatic or what we might consider sort of mundane or normal, is that everyone has encountered the mercy of God through Christ. And guess what happens? Their life changes. Sin's hold on them has been severed by the power of the living Christ. One, one question I, I often ask, maybe I asked you if you're a, a new member with us, hey, how are you different now than you were before you became a Christian? How has your life changed? Maybe that's a question you should consider this morning. How has your life changed since you became a believer? In this last batch of new members, one sister answered that question by saying something to the effect of, before I became a Christian, I was self-focused. I had a biting tongue. I was harsh. I was proud. And while I still struggle with pride, now the Lord has given me a new desire to serve others. Now, praise God. This is what the new birth looks like in the kind of rubber meets the road action. John Newton, who I discussed earlier, said it this way. I love this quote. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Praise God. All these years after Christ saved him, Paul had still not gotten over God's grace. It wasn't old hat to him. He hadn't taken it for granted, even after years of ministry as an apostle. He still was stunned by how undeserving he was to be shown God's mercy and to be used in God's service. And he doesn't want Timothy to get tired of it either. Friends, as much as I wish that this weren't a temptation for pastors, it just is. It just is. I wish that my heart were never tempted to forget the miracle of the new birth in my life. As you pray for me, as you pray for the other elders of our church, perhaps one of your prayers will be that we would live continually in the joy of our salvation, that we would minister in the overflow of what God has done for us in Christ, that the gospel would be fresh and real and concrete in our lives. That's what Paul wants for Timothy. That's what the Spirit of God wants for all of us, that we would have a thankful heart, an amazed heart.
You can just see Paul's thanksgiving build as he writes. In verse 15, he moves from talking about, talking about himself in relation to God's saving work in Christ, and he kind of gives now a, a pithy statement that applies to everyone who trusts in him. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, friends, take it to the bank. Take it to the bank. There aren't more, word, more trustworthy words than these, namely, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Back in verse 11, Paul referred to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Well, here is that gospel in nugget form. Here's the gospel nugget. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Friends, you'll not hear better news than this. Perhaps you're waiting this morning on news and what you hope is good news. Maybe it's news from a medical test or a job interview or a scholarship application. Oh, friends, I hope you get the news that you're hoping for. I hope it's good news. But friends, any other earthly news takes a back seat to the message that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Why is it such good news? Why is this such amazingly good news for us? Because Paul's phrase, save sinners, Christ came to save sinners, assumes catastrophically bad news. Friends, in Adam, humanity has rebelled against God. We've rejected his kingship. We've, we've given our primary allegiance to other things. We've, we've worshiped and served and loved ourselves rather than God. We're sinners. It would be entirely fair and right for God to consign all of humanity to hell forever. He doesn't owe us anything but fairness. And fairness would be the swift execution of his judgment. But friends, praise God that this bad news is overwhelmed by good news of a God so full of love and compassion and mercy that he sent his own son on a rescue mission. He came to save. That's what it means when it says that Christ saved sinners. This is why he was born a man. This is why he lived and died in our place. He came to save us from what we deserve. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope you'll never get the impression that Christianity is what we do to get to God. No, friends, Christianity is about the jaw-droppingly good news of what God did in Christ to rescue us. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, on the cross, God treated Christ, the sinless one, as if he were a sinner. When Jesus hung there, suspended between heaven and earth, he became the object of God's just wrath that we deserve. He bore the penalty of sin in our place. He was our substitute. That's why we call it a substitutionary atonement. So for all who trust in Christ to save them, then God treats them as if they are sinless in Christ. In Christ, we trade in our filthy, tattered rags for his spotless robe of righteousness. That's the gospel. And how do we know that the Father accepted the sacrifice of the Son for sinners? How do we know that what Christ did actually saves? Well, friends, we have the receipt. On the third day, Jesus walked out of the tomb. The Father raised the Son to life by the power of the Spirit. And because he accepted Jesus' sacrifice and proved it by raising him from the dead, friends, you can take it to the bank. Take it to the bank. This is a trustworthy saying. He accepts Christ's finished work for all who trust in him. You know, some friends, some of you sit here week after week and you hear this good news preached. What is holding you back from giving your life to the Lord Jesus? Why are you delaying in becoming a Christian? I'll tell you one thing that shouldn't hold you back. That you're out of God's reach. That you're too dirty, you're too sullied, you're, you're too guilty for God to save. Friend, let Paul's testimony encourage you. 
If he rescued a terrorist who killed Christians for his day job, then surely he can rescue you. The arm of the Lord is not too short to save you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You can become a Christian this morning right now, right now as you're sitting there listening to me. You don't have to pray a special prayer. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to even get baptized in order to be saved. Becoming a Christian is simply the movement of your heart toward Jesus that's matched by a confession of your lips and the aim of your life. Your heart simply trusts, rests in Christ. Not that just that he's the savior of sinners in general, but that he, the Lord, is your savior by virtue of what he has done on the cross in his resurrection with the dead. You simply, through the movement of your heart, say, I want him to be my savior. I want him to be my Lord and my God. Oh, friend, don't delay any longer. If you're ready to become a Christian, become one. Trust in Christ. We would love nothing better for you. If after today's service, you talk to one of us, talk to a member, talk to one of the elders, talk to me, I'll be at the back. I would love to answer your questions. I would love to hear what God is doing in your life. Come to Christ. I love the little tag on at the end of verse 15. Paul can't help but think of Christ's saving work without reference to himself. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. KJV says, of whom I am chief. I'm the chief of sinners. How could Paul say this? Did he somehow investigate the sinful record of every human who's ever lived? Well, of course not. But friends, Paul's modeling a helpful reality for us as believers. You know what? When you come to recognize let me phrase it differently. When we come to recognize the depth of our depravity, the, the, the sin that resides in our hearts and the depth of mercy that we've received through Christ, you know what we stop doing immediately? We stop playing the comparison game. We stop comparing our righteousness to others, lining ourselves next to others and, and evaluating our righteousness in light of them. Friends, Paul was so vividly aware of his own sin that he couldn't imagine anyone else being worse. Each one of us ought to be able to say this about ourselves, ought we? I'm the worst sinner I know. Not my spouse. Not my kids. Not my boss. Not my coworkers. Not my neighbor. I am. I'm the worst sinner I know. Friends, if you would cultivate this type of accurate perspective about yourself, how might it affect your marriage? How might it affect your family life? How might it affect your perspective on the blessings that God has freely given others, but that he's withheld right now from you? Blessings that you wish you had? How might it affect the love and mercy that we display to others in the church? I'll tell you how. That type of perspective, I'm the foremost of sinners, friends. Having that type of perspective will fill our hearts with humility. A humility that then overflows in graciousness. How can I look down on others when Christ did not so look down on me? How can I withhold forgiveness for offenses against me when, when Christ did not withhold forgiveness for my sin against an infinitely holy God? How can I complain about what I don't have when I, the chief of sinners, have received God's free pardon for my sin through Christ Jesus? It radically transforms our perspective. Paul refers to this, this receiving of his mercy, God's mercy in Christ, again in verse 16. But this time he states not just the reality of Christ's mercy, but the purpose of it. You see that? Why did Christ save him? He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul effectively says this. He says, I'm the foremost of sinners, but I'm a prototype of God's patience. Oh, sure, Paul's conversion was unique. 
God has not saved many, if any, in the same way that he saved the Apostle Paul. Paul's conversion experience wasn't prototypical, but God's patience with him was, friends. This is how God works. This is what he does. Paul's saying, my life is exhibit A of the type of long-suffering, slow-to-anger patience that God shows to sinners. Now, just think of how God has used Paul's testimony down through the ages. It's still speaking to us this morning, either, nearly two millennia later. It's bulletin board material for God's saving work. This is what God does. We read Paul's testimony and we realize that if God can be so patient with the likes of Saul of Tarsus, then surely he can show this type of patience to me. Surely he can show this type of patience in a saving way to my wayward child. Oh, surely he can demonstrate this type of patient mercy to my lost family, to my vulgar coworker. Surely God can do that. Friends, let me ask you, do you see your testimony and your life as an opportunity to magnify God's work in you to others? Your story, do you see that as a springboard for ministry like Paul did? You say, well, I don't have a remarkable testimony like Paul. I don't have a remarkable testimony like John Newton. Oh, friends, it may not be that dramatic, but we all have a story of grace. We all are the recipients of the Spirit-transforming work. You know, sharing your testimony, it's not the same as sharing the gospel, but it can be an amazing bridge toward a gospel conversation. So I would encourage you this week, friends, with your family, un- unbelieving lost family, with your, your coworkers who, whom you're trying to steer toward Christ, maybe just ask them, can I tell you how I became a Christian? I seriously doubt they'll say no. If they do, it's on them and you move on. But friends, what an easy way, what an easy on-ramp toward a gospel conversation. Let me tell you what God did for me. Tell them, friends, how you were before you came to Christ. Tell them about the sins that you understand to have earned God's judgment. Oh, but then tell them how God displayed his mercy to you and how you became, came to believe that Christ died for your sins. Tell them how, how you came to faith, how your life is different now than it was before you were, became a Christian. Perhaps the Lord will use your example of his patience in someone's life. Perhaps as they hear your story, friends, they'll think to themselves, wow, wow, if, if God can do that for John or Bo or Michelle or Helene or CJ or Joanne or Anthony or Karen, oh, surely if God can do that for them, maybe, maybe he can do that for me too. In verse 17, it's like Paul's reflection that's been simmering on low heat for the past several verses now just boils over in praise. Paul began by thanking God, and now he wraps up his testimony in full-hearted, full-throated worship. It's one of the most beautiful verses in all the Scripture, in my estimation. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever Amen. It has a liturgical ring to it, doesn't it? It, Maybe it was used in corporate worship in the early church. We're not sure. Friends, this morning, we don't have time to linger on each of these descriptions of the Lord. But suffice it to say that the one who saves is the one who deserves praise. Paul gives glory to the transcendent king who is eternal, immortal, and invisible, yet who intervened in time and space to save sinners like us. Friends, let's tie this again to what's going on in Ephesus. We don't know for sure that Timothy was ready to throw in the towel, but the mere fact that Paul urges him repeatedly to stay in Ephesus makes me think that he was ready to pack things in. The fact that he reiterated his charge to Timothy multiple times makes me think that Timothy was likely discouraged. He was likely weary of the hard conversations with men like the false teachers. Maybe he was tired of feeling like the bad guy as people looked at his, his kind of hardline ministry as he tried to steer the church back to the truth. 
Maybe he felt unqualified for a work of this magnitude. What Paul is essentially telling Timothy is, well, join the club, Timothy. Welcome to the unqualified club. None of us qualifies ourselves. None of us strengthens ourselves for ministry. None of us has what it takes on our own. All of us are the recipients of grace. And if God so, can so radically change and qualify me, Timothy, then surely he'll do the same for you. By the grace of God, you are what you are. And by the grace of God, Timothy, your church can know this transforming power too. And that leads us to the last part of chapter one and our second and much more brief point this morning. Not only do we see a grace-filled blueprint for ministry, Paul in verses 18 to 20 reiterates this grace-fueled responsibility that Timothy has in ministry. He writes in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, that is, a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Remember back in verse 11, Paul wrote that the gospel had been entrusted to him. That's the language he used. And now he entrusts a gospel charge to Timothy. And part of that charge, again, was that he was to stay in Ephesus and deal with these false teachers. Friends, no wonder Paul spent so much time reflecting on the preciousness and power of the gospel, the power of God's work. This is the same gospel that Timothy is to guard within the church. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Paul frames Timothy's pastoral duty by the metaphor of a soldier. Do you see that? Wage the good warfare, Timothy. Fight the good fight. Don't run from the battlefield. Stay engaged. Those of you that serve or have served in the military know how this works. When you're given an order in war, you're to carry it out no matter the cost. It becomes part of your sacred duty. That's how Paul wants Timothy to conceive of his pastoral role at the church of Ephesus. Now, I know most of us aren't pastors in this room, but all of us who are committed to the gospel and faithful ministry, friends, we will experience spiritual conflict. We will at some point be engaged in spiritual warfare. We all need to be fortified and prepared for when the need might arise to confront a brother or sister, to warn them who who are straying from the faith. When we experience the attacks of the enemy to discourage us in what God has called us to do. Oh, beloved, when that time comes, remember these words to Timothy. By grace, wage the good warfare. But notice, it's not just the grace of the gospel that ought to fuel Timothy, although it's a closely related point. Paul says it's the grace of prophecies made about Timothy in the past. Paul entrusts Timothy with this charge while reminding him of prophecies previously made about him. Now, we don't know exactly what these prophecies were, but in chapter 4, verse 14, you can scan there if you want. Chapter 4, verse 14 indicates that, that Paul's referring to words spoken to Timothy when he was ordained for ministry, when the elders of the church laid hands on him and commissioned him for ministry. So, friends, perhaps, this is a bit of a theological reasoning here, perhaps when the church set Timothy apart for ministry, the other elders affirmed God's work in him, his readiness for ministry, the promises of God for his ministry. Perhaps they reminded Timothy that, Timothy, God will be with you. You will face trials and suffering, but endure to the end. The Spirit is your guide. The Lord Jesus will defend you and enable you to the end. We're not entirely sure, but regardless, Paul wants Timothy to remember these words, these prophecies. It would be by following these gracious words that Timothy could fight the good fight. But notice, Paul doesn't only emphasize the resources by grace available to Timothy for warfare. He instructs Timothy in verse 19 what he should do in the fight. As Timothy wages war as a good soldier of Christ, he'll need to guard two things especially, faith and a good conscience. If he abandons a living faith in Christ, then it's easy to understand how Timothy might be tempted to drop his sword and abandon his post in battle. 
He'll be strengthened by grace for the fight to the degree he trusts in his captain by faith. King Jesus is the one who will arm and resource him through the gospel. But equally important is a good conscience. Friends, each one of us has a conscience. It's a gift from the Lord. It's simply our consciousness of what we believe to be right or wrong, according to the scripture. That's what our conscience is. And of course, if you're not a Christian, you still have a conscience, although it is deformed and defaced by sin. As Timothy trusts in Christ, he must always live in accordance with this awareness of what is right and what is wrong according to God's word. Paul says, don't trample your conscience, Timothy. Don't ignore, don't push mute on its warning bells. Don't sear it through sin. Why? Well, Paul tells us. He says, by rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan so they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul mentions two men specifically. How would you like to go down in the records of, of Scripture? It's the guys who rejected a good conscience. What an awful legacy. Hymenaeus and Alexander. Maybe they were among the false teachers whom Timothy was dealing with, but it seems more likely that they were men whom Paul had already dealt with. Since Paul writes that he had handed them over to Satan already, it's past tense. These men were apostates. Paul mentions Hymenaeus again in 2 Timothy 2, linking him with false teaching about the resurrection. Paul also mentions a man named Alexander at the end of 2 Timothy, writing that Alexander had done Paul great harm. But for Paul, friends, it was not an intellectual drift that caused Hymenaeus and Alexander to run their ship into the rocks. It was a moral drift. It was because they rejected a good conscience. Brothers and sisters, this is a a warning for us this morning. It teaches us how important it is not to disregard the voice of conscience. It's not that our consciences are infallible. In fact, much of our Christian maturity in Christ involves calibrating our conscience increasingly in line with God's word. We know that from the scripture even, that it's, it's possible to have a conscience that's, that's overly sensitive in areas that the Bible gives freedom. Paul calls this a weak conscience. But Paul's clear throughout the scripture that whether your conscience is weak or strong, whether it's biblically underdeveloped or biblically sufficiently developed, it's sin to ignore your conscience. God has given it to you as a guide. Even if you have a weak or overly sensitive conscience, to ignore it is to ignore what you think God says. Martin Luther echoed Paul saying that to ignore conscience is neither right nor safe. Beloved, there's a, there's a close connection, a tragically close connection between apostasy and a bad conscience. If we allow sin to remain unconfessed, and unforsaken in our lives, and so abandon our conscience, we may find ourselves soon abandoning faith in Jesus Christ. Calvin wrote in his commentary on 1 Timothy, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. We hear a lot today about Christians deconstructing, deconstructing their faith or deconverting from Christianity. I don't find that language particularly helpful because there are biblical categories, categories to, for such things. But just understand, friends, that when Christians abandon their faith, even if they say their objections are intellectual, under, underneath is often a moral objection. The drift of the mind is nearly always accompanied by the drift of the heart. If you stiff-arm the Christ you once embraced, it's more likely than not. The reason is that you have rejected a good conscience. But as sobering a word as this is from Paul, even this sobering word is laced with the gospel. Paul says that he's handed Hymenaeus and Alexander, what? Over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul only uses this language about handing someone over to Satan one other time in the scriptures. You know where that is? 
It's in 1 Corinthians 5 when he commands the church at Corinth to remove a man from their membership who's in public grievous sin. It's Paul's shorthand for what we call today church discipline. He's talking about removing someone from the spiritual protection that the church offers governed by Christ and exposing them to the world that is in opposition to God that's governed by Satan. When a person's life can no longer give a credible witness to the gospel, the the church is called to remove our affirmation of that person's profession of faith. It's a very serious act for a church to undertake. And that's what Paul did with Hymenaeus and Alexander. He removed them from the church's membership and he handed them over to Satan. Maybe implicitly, Paul's implying that this is what Timothy and the church at Ephesus ought to do with the false teachers. But notice the purpose. Paul says the aim of this action is so that they learn not to blaspheme. In other words, the, by implication, is that when a church pronounces church discipline, when they execute that action as a church, it's not irrevocable. It's not written in indelible ink. If a person learns their lesson and repents, they can be restored if they learn. In fact, this is the very aim of such such action. Church discipline isn't merely a temporal judgment. It is a rescue mission. And this brings us full circle, doesn't it? Why? Could Paul even raise this possibility that men who had so swerved from the faith and made shipwreck of their faith could learn the lesson that God wanted them to learn? Only because our hope, our only hope as a church, our only hope in ministry is the power of the gospel. If God is powerful enough and merciful enough to save a Christian killing terrorist like Paul, then he's powerful and merciful enough to rescue those who have drifted away. Praise God, this grace is more than sufficient to save us from sin and to strengthen us for ministry. Before he died, John Newton wrote his own epitaph, which is now actually etched in a marble tablet in his church there in Woolworth. And it says this, John Newton, an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the gospel, which he had long labored to destroy. Friends, may this gospel of grace be on the forefront of our minds and hearts. I pray it will infuse in us a rich gratitude to Christ, that it will will put steel in our bones for whatever God has called us to in his service. As Newton wrote, "'Tis grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning. We thank you that we don't have to to come up with our own resources for ministry. We thank you that uh, it is entirely due to your grace. Oh, Father, we thank you for what you've done in each one of our lives in bringing us to Jesus and exposing us to the, to the gospel, and then giving us the gifts of faith and repentance to lay hold on Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you today for your saving work. We ask for even a more rich understanding of this gospel that's reconciled us to God, that's reconciled us to each other, even as we take the Lord's Supper this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.